Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. It's hard to believe it. It's almost the turning point of 2020, Ted. I'm Yogi Roth, of course, of course joined by Ted Robinson, Ted and Yogi's Pack 12 Adventure. And it's the holiday edition, which is exciting, Ted. So happy holidays to you. I know that you are excited to be around your family in whatever capacity that is. Yeah, absolutely, Yogi. Look, we're this year the calendar has us, we're in this awkward in-between phase. Hanukkah has already finished its celebration, Christmas to come. So if you celebrated Hanukkah like Yogi, your family did all the best and uh, and everybody kind of shuts down anyway for the next few days, except for a handful of bowl games, which is nonsense. We'll get into that. But uh, but Yogi, look, let's, let's get to the headline first in the Pac-12 after the championship game and the awards and the honors. The biggest news has just happened with Arizona hiring a new coach. And you know him. Yeah, Jed Fish. And I'm really excited to talk about him. Um, you know, there was a lot of names circulated for that job. Uh, don't know the inner workings of that process necessarily, but I know when the, where they netted out. And that's the reality of where we are right now. By the time you've listened to it, you probably already watched the Jed Fish press conference and listened to a bunch of interviews. If you're an Arizona fan, and I bet you've been impressed. Uh, and I just want to kind of give a context for him, Ted, if I can here for a minute. Um, I, I've known Jed for 15 years. We met in 2009, or a little bit before that, but we really started spending time together in 2009. We both went to Seattle uh, with Pete Carroll for the Seahawks. He went as the quarterback coach. I was going to go as the assistant line coach. And we were there the same night and we went to dinner and we sat next to each other and just hit it off. As you might imagine, right? He's got a great personality about him. And I got to know his background. And from that point on, we have tracked each other. And I think it's important to kind of lay the groundwork of his path. So he grew up in, ten- he grew up in New Jersey playing tennis. I know you and he are going to get along very well with that background, but he always wanted to be a football coach. And he grew up going to Bergen Catholic practices as like a ball boy, Bergen Catholic, you know, Matt Lavecchio, the Notre Dame quarterback, right? Yeah. For those who don't know, New Jersey, it's a big time, big time high school football program. Big time high school football program. And he always wanted to be a football coach, right? He grew up around it, was watching film of high school football and didn't play. Right? He, he couldn't play football. He, couldn't, uh, he, he had like some uh, health issues as a kid, so he wasn't playing uh, tackle football, but he loved the craft. And he's like, I'm going to go to college and be a football coach. So where do I want to go? I'm going to go to Florida because that's where Steve Spurrier is. So he chooses to go to Florida, and then he graduates in 1995. And he has no in. He just has a, a vision to be a football coach. So he leaves over 300 Post-it notes and packets and articles on Steve Spurrier's car for a couple of years. And finally gets a volunteer job with Florida, with Florida Gators and spent four years on that staff. Then from there went to the, uh, the Jags when they were the expansion team, or excuse me, the Houston Texans and spent time with Dom Capers. And uh, there was another coach uh, who was a former Browns coach, Chris Palmer. There were the three that like hung out in a trailer for months on end, putting together a program. So here he is 25, four years of experience with Spurrier. Then he understands what the league is like. And then his career kind of takes off, learns under Brian Billick, then goes to Shanahan and the Broncos, gets his first shot as an OC to Golden Gophers, and then we meet each other with the Seattle Seahawks. A moment on his character. The, the Seahawks fire their OC at the time. He has the chance to get that job. And he says, I don't want it because the guy who brought me here was the one who just got let go. It doesn't feel right for me to take his job. So he leaves and goes back to college because he says, I love college. I love that community. He goes to Miami Hurricanes. I spent an entire training camp with him doing a documentary on ESPN, Never Aired, which is another podcast in and of itself. But I spent a month in his meeting room because it was called QB1 or QB something. And it was all about the quarterback journey. So I, I'm intimately around this guy. Spends a couple seasons there, transitions to their offense, and then triples his pay and goes to Jacksonville to coach and be an OC in the league. 
That obviously does not go well with Gus Bradley. He goes to Harbaugh at Michigan, spends a couple years there. Times, at least we can say this, I think, out loud, some relationships can get toxic in, in the building when you're around Michigan to a certain degree. Jed decides, you know what? I don't want to, I, I want to take the next step in my career as a full-time play caller. Goes out to UCLA. We spend time with him at UCLA under Demora. Demora has multiple years under contract, has a huge buyout, never thinks he's going to get fired. One year later, he's fired. Has a chance to go to a bunch of schools, a lot of big time places you can imagine where coaches go when they need to kind of rekindle their career. It's not that hard to figure out what I'm alluding to. Decides not to do that and stays in LA with his family and works for Sean McVay. And he spent the two years with McVay this past year with Belichick and said the last four years, I've really prepared to be a head coach. And I, I think that's important because he's perceived as a job hopper. And I'm just kind of going on a rant here. But he really went to find different mentors and leaders. And when you look at the context of each job and why he left, I think it makes a lot of sense after you hear what I just said. Yeah, that's a fascinating path. And I didn't know the origin. And as you were telling me the origin of Jed Fisher's story, I'm going to, I'm going to substitute. That's happened before. And I'll substitute for Steve Spurrier, Bill Parcells. And for Jed Fish, Charlie Weiss. Oh, how yeah. it started. Charlie Weiss never played it down. Charlie Weiss and I were classmates in college. We both played the same number of downs of serious football. <laughs> Zero. Okay. But he did the same thing. And Charlie Weiss, to his credit, was dogged and worked his way up from ground zero through Bill Parcell's tree to where he eventually got a chance to be a head coach twice in the in division one football. So it's a, as soon as you said that, that's what I started thinking about. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I'm just excited for him. He's, and, and you, you said it on our last podcast, you go to college town, you got to be about family, family in that community. And he said it in his presser today. And he's told me many times he's wanted this job, right? It was out there. They talked about it today in his press conference. He interviewed for this job when they gave it to Kevin Sumlin. He loves that community. He loves taking his daughters to softball and basketball and swimming needs. Like he wants to be that coach, that guy in the community. He'll probably ride his bike or walk to work. Like that, that's who he is. So I do think that while he clearly hasn't been a head coach before full time, uh, he's prepared for the job. And, you know, he, he got to deal with that of like the first time head coach side, that's going to re- that's going to be real time head coach decisions and games, all of the elements and hiring and firing coaches, all the responsibilities that come with that office. But I think he's been as prepared for this job as you can be having not done it. All right. So there's my next question for you. You know him. That is to me the ultimate first litmus test for a first time head coach. What kind of staff can he put together? I think it's going to be impressive. I talked to somebody who has a chance to be his offensive coordinator. Uh, He's going to pull from the NFL but he's going to pull from college and he understands recruiting. I mean, that's the one thing Jed gets. And if you go to UCLA, the last time he was in college, what he did when he got on the staff regarding recruiting was really impressive. I think, and I know uh, fans of Arizona may not want to hear this comp, but I think it's, it's, it's the appropriate one. I think it's going to look and feel like Arizona state in terms of the pro model of a recruiting department and really going hard in that regard. Cause they have to find guys. They got to go Utah ask of, Three-star guys, chip on the shoulder, who want to come compete. And, and then I think Jed, to his credit, I think he'll be able to recruit a quarterback because they need one now with Grant Cannell in the portal pending. I think Grant has, has already found out where he's going to go. I would urge him if he hears this to not. I'm going to send him a message right after this to say, go meet Jed Fish 
because this guy's done wonders for so many quarterbacks, Josh Rosen notably, um, at least in the college ranks. Jared Goff raves about Jed. Jared Goff wanted him to be the Cal OC prior to Bill Musgrave getting hired. So I think there's a lot to be liked from him. And regarding the staff, I think he'll get, uh, he'll get some big names. I think he'll also get a lot of guys that just know how to recruit Southern California, the state of Arizona and Texas. You fascinate me. I, I want to get back to this, to Gunnell in a second. What kind of offense do you think Jed wants to run? Yeah, he got asked that today, and he, he, I loved his answer. Um, he, he basically said, we are going to have uh, an offense that is based on our personnel uh, that is all about incredible effort, right? So he basically didn't say much around it. <laughs> yeah. But to me, knowing him, yeah. you're going to see uh, – you're going to see an, an offense similar to Alabama's and, and not the productivity. Cause that's crazy what they have regarding the, the horses they have, but you're going to see their quarterback have the ability to get in their center. You're going to see them elements of play action game. You're also going to see him, you know, spin the ball. I mean, Josh Rosen, if you want to go back and watch 2017, I think that was the year that that's the year of offense where they're moving the ball. I think he game plans really well, understands the simplicity that this mind needs. So I think it'll be uh Three wides, you know, it's coined 11 personnel. It's a lot of three wide offense with the ability to run the football and, get, you know, play pitch and catch, which might seem like, well, why doesn't everybody do that? But everybody doesn't do that, right? A lot of teams don't get under center. We've talked about that with USC in the past. A lot of teams do want to have two tight ends. Uh, we talked about Utah. A lot of teams want a fullback now. That's Cal and Washington. So I, I think it, when it's all said and done, he gets two years under his belt. I think his offense will be one of the more creative ones in the league. Yeah, and that's why I'm asking because there are different – that's the beauty to me of college is that there is variety in, in the offensive schemes, and I just don't know where, where he would fall in that. I, I am – I did – you know, this is why I love you because I did not know Grant Cannell had gone in the portal. doesn't surprise me. Nothing in that regard should surprise any of us that love college football. So here's my slight pivot on this question to you. It certainly applies to, uh, to Jed going into Arizona. I know I've heard it watching Oregon State's game the other night, Jonathan Smith referencing it, recruiting. And you have done the deepest dive of anybody out here into the minutia of every high school recruit. How important is that anymore? And how much of recruiting, because it's gone this way in basketball. In basketball now, it is to me, it's more about the portal and the grad transfer than it is the AAU player. How close to that is football right now? I, I, I fear it's going to get there. It's not there yet. The problem is, is that it hasn't been approved, but everybody anticipates it, which is why we're seeing 30, 40, 50 people per day get into the portal since signing day. It's uh, assumed that you're going to get a one-time transfer freedom, yeah. right? Which I want to go. For, I don't have to sit. Which well, they just did for basketball last week. They just did it. Oh, perfect. So, yeah, it's coming down the pipe. Yeah. So, with that, uh, you're in free agency. I think a lot of mistakes that coaches are making or that may coaches may make is thinking they could just rebuild their whole roster. Cause I don't think there's enough players. Like, I don't think Oregon state, UCLA, uh, Arizona, U of a or ASU, U of a and SC are going to be able to get every guy in the country. Like I know they all are going to compete for a lot of the same guys. So I think if you're banking on, Hey, we are going to build our or rebuild our roster with guys in the portal in college football. I'm worried because there's a reason guys are in the portal. They either didn't love their situation because they didn't play in their situation or they're not good enough or they don't love football. And maybe every once in a while there's a Grant Canel, right. Who was a starter and just, you know, I don't know what his reason was, um, you know, decided to opt out and go there. So I think the biggest thing for him to do is take advantage of the, the pseudo free agency and really build relationships with high schools because right now what's happening, 
a lot of high school kids are getting overlooked or had scholarships pulled two weeks ago on signing day because they said, I want to rebuild in the portal. And I don't know you because you didn't come to camp and I couldn't come watch you work out. Right. So I actually think for Jed and his staff, there's a pretty cool opportunity to go deep on some of these high schools and just start building relationships, pipelines, find a Pied Piper in Southern California, then come out and play well. Justin Wilcox did that player out of uh, um, the, the huge high school up there. Um, they made a movie about it in Northern California. They like won a million games in a row. De La Salle. De La Salle. Yeah. So he gets a, he got a player out of De La Salle, one of the last guys they signed. And he is as well known in that community, in that league, uh, as anybody watch out like they're going to keep cleaning house and i think jed can do something like that so whether that's a quarterback or whether that's a star player i think that's where he goes and then i think you start patch holing hey we need a left tackle we need this and i think that's how jed will do it uh what he'll do year one i don't know but i know the guy and we can say it on this show i can't say it on the pactual networks but clay millen hugh millen's youngest son was supposed to sign an arizona quarterback really talented player didn't sign I can't wait to talk to Hugh, and I'm not going to urge him one way or the other, but I'm going to present who I think Jed is as a quarterback builder, and I hope his son goes there because uh, I don't know where else he can go based on what I saw in signing day. And, and I know we'll, I know people, this is Pac-12 football, and we'll get to that, but I just think this is so important, Yogi, because it's macro, and it's important for college football in, in this crazy, as we end 2020 with the world changing, you are so po- well-poised because I learn from you on this stuff because I freely admit I don't get into the recruiting thing at all. I just don't care about it. So, but I'm watching this and I'm in very deep in basketball and I've seen how basketball has morphed. Now, major difference obviously is the one and done, which I think is completely destructive to college basketball. It's awful. And it has forced free agency. The word I've used for several years that I know college people cringe when I say it, but it's what it is. And it's been, it's been there in college basketball now for probably five years. And coaches in the Pac-12 use it and have done very well with it to rebuild year by year. But they are also at the whim of the player that can leave every year. Football has been anchored by the three-year, right? Or has been, has been uh, characterized by the three-year anchor, so to speak. Well, now the portal and the COVID fallout of immediate you know, waivers on transfers. And like I said, they just last week, the NCAA just approved it. Uh, and several players in the Pac-12 have started playing in the last few days who were frozen until that waiver came down. I assume the same thing's going to happen for football. Plus, on top of it, Yogi, is the automatic where coaches that were going through signing day a couple of weeks ago are trying to figure out, wait a minute, how many of my guys are going to come back? Yeah. Because they got a free year. So how do you manage your roster, right? You have 85 how do I manage that if 12 of my, you know, David Shaw got a lot of heat last year for the number of players that left, right? Not very many of the players that left Stanford were going to play for him. And that was basically the message that was, I think, subtly and privately delivered. Look, if you have a better opportunity, if you think you may play someplace else, I'm going to encourage you, which is the humane way to do it, right? If you have a better opportunity, go do it. Yeah, I, I think it, it sparks a memory for me. And this jet is going to deal with this. Is remember Richard Mullaney? So Richard Mullaney is a third down receiver at Oregon State. Yeah, uh, right. Awesome guy in the slot. Yeah. He became their number one receiver. Brent Brennan, who was reportedly up for the job in Arizona as well, he the coach of the year. How, the, how in God's green earth he's not up for the national coach of the year blows my mind. But regardless, my point is Richard Mullaney. He is set to go into his final year in college as the dude at Oregon State, guess who needs a slot 
receiver, Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban. And what do they do? They go find this senior, and he wins a national championship. So I I worry about, you know, no pun intended and not trying to slight anybody, but the mid-tier Pac-12 teams are now Arizona, who's in the bottom of the Pac-12, it's fair to say, based on their season. When they build up and they've got somebody playing well, it's going to be about keeping them, right? There there is going to be a world in this free agency where I think a lot of those elite schools are going to pluck whatever they want. And the one thing I hope, and I can't wait to talk to the powers that be around this, I hope calendar. Let's just call it what it is. Because right now, free agency is 24-7. It's 24-7. Kids can sign, leave, dance, jive. They can go wherever they want anytime. Well, how about we just do it in like a month? We have a window where you, you have to commit or recommit to a school. That sounds like a professional league, but it's basically professional sports regarding free agency. Because to me, it's very uh, well, it's what you have it's with so the, unsettling. It's what you have with the draft. It's okay. You have, you have a window where you can declare, you can test your draft potential, and then by a certain date, you can pull back and say, I'm coming back to school. Right? I think that's, I think that's a fair example. But, but I mean, let's, let's just, I, I think it's, it's to be called like it is, the pendulum, which has been so against any player rights in college athletics for so long, it, and I think COVID has accelerated it, swinging back towards the other extreme. Eventually, it needs to settle in the middle, <laughs> Right now, it's swinging back, right, to the other extreme. And, and what hurts the cause, because you know, you know, you were a coach. I've talked to a million coaches in my time. The coaches can't stand this, right, because they have no certainty to their rosters. So they hate this. I know that. Here's, here's what hurts them. This knucklehead coach at South Carolina, Mike Bobo, who I actually dealt with a couple of years ago. He's the head coach of Colorado State. We had a game in Colorado. But I don't know. I dealt with him once. But now somehow he's an assistant coach at South Carolina, and they're having a bowl possibility this past week. And he openly says, there's no vote here. You sign up to play at South Carolina, you are going to play in a bowl game. There's no vote. There's no, you don't get asked if you want to do it. Given everything that we've gone through this year, and given the incredibly smart, and, and, and thoughtful and empathetic positions that the coaches around the country have taken in our conference that David Shaw took, right? Him, and leading the way and saying, this should be the players that have a say in playing these nonsense bowl games that are, that are just TV programming for ESPN. And then you have this guy come out and say when he does, I don't know how anybody would ever hire this guy as a coach in this climate, ever. That's amazing. I'm looking at a book and we're on Zoom on me too. And David Shaw recommended it called Radical Acceptance. We started reading it in this house and it's about like accepting, right? What is 2020, right? Thoughts around just accepting what's real in the world. And I think the coaches don't accept that players have a voice and it's a lot of times well-informed and coming from a place, um, a good place, they got no chance. Yeah. And I, I got no time for him either to be, to be straight up with you. Um, that's, that's amazing to, to hear that. I know it was, it, okay, was, well, it was tragic. So yeah, we kind of veered <laughs> off, we kind of veered off the track there from, from Arizona having uh, Arizona, having a new head coach. So uh, the championship game, you know, kind of, yes. uh, I mean, I, I brought it up before and I just, I just shook my head again. I just, I just can't fathom. I'm sorry. I cannot fathom as, as, well, as USC played to pull out games this year, I cannot fathom their utter inability to function in short yardage. It, and it, it was early in that game. Oh, my gosh. 
it just it's just not USC football to me. I, I don't I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, well, I think we got to be truth tellers on it. It's a challenge because when Clay got hired, I remember it right. It was the fight on sweatshirt at Notre Dame, right? That was the game, and they lost, but a physical game, right? And you know Clay as well as I know Clay, son of an offensive line coach. Uh, he wants to play physical, dictate term style of football. And then there's this world where when you watch that offense, his first couple years, at least for me, uh, at times it looked like Stanford's offense when they're rolling last couple seasons at times where you make a completion and it's like an exhale, like, ha, oh, we just got 12 yards. That was really hard to get it. So you say to yourself, like, oh, I watch Wazoo. They get 12 yards in their sleep. Like, they're just playing pitch and catch, moving down the field. Like, why don't we do that? We got better athletes than having this exact conversation with Sark when he became the head coach at SC because he was going to do the same thing, different version, but kind of what they're doing at Bama. Let me spread you out yeah. and use these first-round picks in space. So I love that thought, right? And for all the SC fans that listen to this, don't forget what you want. You wanted easy football. You wanted moving the ball up and down the field. But to your point, they have – and Graham Harrell's ran the ball in his career. That, that's been noted at North Texas. I've sat in his meetings. He wants to run the football. It's not as though he doesn't want to do it, but in his style, not getting under center. Right? And that is impacting the run game. To me, that is impacting the physicality at the line of scrimmage. And there's some times where they look really good at the line of scrimmage, but I haven't seen many times when SC needed to get four yards where they said, hey, everybody knows we're going to run it and we're going to run it and find success. And you, and you referenced, obviously, another one that we saw this year in terms of a short yardage situation. I think that's real. That's a real thought. Um, and that's a real, uh, you know, at least from us, a criticism that you, that you want to see them do it because they should be able to do it. And the reality is they couldn't. Uh, the other reality to me in that game that I found, I don't know if it was frustrating or impressive, but Kayvon Thibodeau wow. just went off. Yeah. And I appreciate when you're like, our guys can line up with him. But I also can appreciate when you say, our guys aren't lining up well with him when the game gets going. Because that was, other than the first drive, when he was lined up against Elijah Vera Tucker, Vera Tucker did a nice job. Wasn't great, but you're looking at him like, this is a good NFL matchup. We talked about it last week. When he went to the other side, it was all him all night. And it wasn't any chip in. They clearly don't, they don't have a ton that's attached to the offensive line. I mean, they didn't. They didn't seem to want to stop him and say, hey, everybody else beat us on the defensive front. They, they felt confident in their guys stopping him, and, and to me, they just they couldn't. See, that's a part of the old – to me, that's uh, – it was, I was texting you during the game watching it because – and I guess it's, you know, the, the years I spent learning in the NFL where that just would be unacceptable. What Thibodeau did would be unacceptable over the course of a game. Once that starts and you see somebody – totally disrupting what you're trying to do, then you adjust immediately and you will, you will immediately stop that from happening and say, okay, somebody else is going to have to beat me. This won't continue. And to not see that happen once in that game against Thibodeau, that was the point that I, I just didn't understand. And again, I've never been in a coach, a coach's situation. So I watch this as an informed <laughs> observer and it's just hard to figure out. Yeah, that one was tough because he had his way all game long. And, and I guess, you know, there, there's a world where probably SC says, well, if we made four plays, five plays, we win that game. If we don't commit three penalties, we win that game. If we catch the interception, Tano Hofunga almost made an amazing play in the end zone, we win the game. And our game plan works. Like, all fair. But still, 
there was a game record on the field for Oregon's defense, and it was number five. And that's why he was voted MVP of the game. I voted for him as MVP of the game. Uh, and I think next year he's got a chance to be the defensive player of the year in the conference. Uh, he's that, that talent. I think he's a top 10 type of draft pick too, Ted. I really do. It's what we talked about last week about the game would be, okay, could USC's receivers dominate Oregon secondary? The best way to stop that from happening is put pressure. Slovis had people in his face. A lot of it was number five, but he had people in his face the whole game. And he didn't have a great game, I didn't think, but it was hard for me to sit watch the game and fault him. I mean, he made a terrible throw on the first interception, but the, the guy, I mean, he had no time. He had no time the whole game. They didn't protect. Yeah, it was too bad. Um... For, for the conference and for SC. So, so with that, um, obviously the game is the game. We heard, uh, obviously we talked about it on Saturday night on uh, Pac-12 After Dark. Pretty much everybody's opted out of a bowl game who's qualified. We've got two we're going to talk about. we got the Fiesta Bowl, Iowa State, Oregon. We've got the Alamo Bowl, Texas, Colorado. Nobody else is going bowling. Arizona State qualified. After the game, remembers I loved his speech where he talked about how challenging the year it was. SC opted out as well. Um, we don't even know about Slovis' status. The last play of the game, nobody really paid attention to, but he got rocked on the sideline. And everything I'm told is that, I don't know if it's that serious, but I don't know if he would have played in a bowl game. Uh, so you know, we don't know that. Yeah, right. uh, I'm sure there was a factor to that. So uh, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, we talked about it kind of a little bit in the instance you referenced earlier, but regarding SC, um, ASU, a couple other teams that, you know, Stanford, obviously. Washington, Stanford. Washington, yeah. No bowls. I mean, I'm glad that the team, if Oregon wants to go play in a bowl game and they're playing in a really good game, the, the New Year's Day game, that's fine. And the Alamo Bowl is also a good game. And Colorado deserves the opportunity after the year they had to, to play in a bowl game. That's fine. Most of the bowl games to me are just, again, they're, you know how I feel about it. I mean, to me, if the a perfect world, you'd have about you'd have the, the, an 18 playoff and then you'd probably have four or five other bowl games and that would be it. Everything else to me should just make it another regular season game. If you want to play the Weed yeah. Whacker Bowl in Shreveport, schedule the game in September. You just have two, t- two teams. This is, these are the two conferences we're aligned with. These two teams will come down and it's an extra game. Doesn't matter what your record are. You have SEC teams going to three and seven right now anyway, right? So the point is that the bowl games serve no purpose for anybody other than ESPN programming, the vast majority. Again, the big bowl games are in a separate category. Um, And I just think it's so reflective of the Pac-12 to me that the coaches stood up and made those statements, led by David Shaw, led by Herm, and just said, look, it's, it's, you know, the players should have a call in this. Amen to that. And and I can't, Yoga, I can't speak highly enough about, what else happened over the weekend? I don't know how in the heck Stanford won that game at the Rose Bowl, <laughs> but they did. And Carl Durrell did a great job at Colorado. There's no argument about his position as coach of the year, but one a is David Shaw. And I mean, there was some award, one of the awards I saw where Mario Cristobal was in the group and neither Durrell nor Shaw was in it. And that's just wrong. <laughs> that's just yeah. wrong. I mean, what, what David Shaw did given everything he was dealt this year and the fact that both Carl Durrell and David Shaw ran programs that were basically COVID free. I hope when the PAC 12 coaches get together and have their off season meetings that those two coaches get up there and say, okay, here's how we ran our programs. Here's how we attacked this issue that hit everybody, but somehow we managed 
Jonathan Smith at Oregon State managed to stay, right? They didn't lose a game. Uh, and those are the th- examples I think hopefully everybody learns. Those are teach. Wait a minute. Those are teaching moments, Yogi. <laughs> That's right. Teachable moments. That's right. You know, I, there's so much to that. Um, I, I think for me, and, and I remember t- I talked about it with Nigel uh, at depth, where it was like, how many Christmases or Thanksgivings did you go to in college at home? I didn't go to one. Right from 17 on, I didn't go back for a holiday based on playing or coaching. And I think there's a big argument saying, well, players need to get around their families. And there, there's one take that's like, well, dude, it's no big deal. It's just Christmas. But where I kind of net out on that is that. These bowl games, other than the ones that we know, which are New Year's Six or the CFP, none of them matter. None of them. None of them matter. Like, we're just going to be truth tellers. And no offense to the lesser tier bowls. I played in four less tier bowls in my career. I appreciate all the awards and all the fun. But there's no fun. You can't go and do any. You can't go and interact with anybody. You can't even be in your hotel around your teammates. You're Zooming all of your meetings. So you're going to go and maybe go play the game. Maybe you cancel the day off. Like, what is the point? And all your top players are opting out. A USC came out and said their best players wouldn't have played in the game because of the drafts of Tyler Vaughn's, Elijah Vera Tucker, on and on and on, draft eligible players. They ain't going to play. So you want to go and take another hit based on, I think, bowl game reputation is BS anyway because nobody's playing. And they're, a lot of times they're completely different teams. But we look at a record and – comp a conference to a conference and all of a sudden that's your narrative for the next season yes. why in this year when narratives are already overblown and to me uh underappreciated why would you even go do that so there, there's a school that's like well if sc won they'd play in the fiesta bowl you're damn right they would and they should but they didn't and they shouldn't go play in this game because they're not colorado they're not a colorado team that hasn't gone to a bowl game in a while they have two winning seasons in the last 15 years i think like they should go go live it up at the Alamo bowl that is awesome for you but I, so I do think there's a context to every team that uh, is fair, is fair this year. Like if this is a normal year and we see nobody, you know, teams bound out of bowl games, different dialogue. But it's 2020, man. Like it's hard. I talked to Coach Wilcox. He's like, our team met outside all year long. We put our pads on outside all year long. We didn't go in our lot. Like at some point you get exhausted. And to go play in a bowl game and a meaningless game against a team you don't know anything about with four or five days of prep over Christmas, you don't want to be there anyway. What are we talking about? That, that's kind of where I net out with no disrespect to the bowls, but that's, that's truth today, I think. And that's the human real world take from Yogi. And then I'll throw in the business angle on top of it, which has been my biggest problem with the inflated bowl world anyway, which is that most schools lose money because the bowls jam 10,000 tickets down your throat. So what I don't know in all these weed whacker bowls this year is, has that been waived? Because nobody can travel. Even if you can, even if you can, you're in Dallas where we watched Oklahoma play Iowa State the other day, shockingly, uh, and fans are sitting, I mean, it's spaced, but groups of four and six fans are sitting next to each other with no masks on. It's hard to fathom. So if you're going to go play a bowl game there and they're going to let 20,000 fans in, do you still have to buy 10? And your fans really can't slash won't travel. Um, anyway, that's the part. So the financial element, I don't know the answer to that question, but if I'm being asked to go play in a bowl game in Mobile, Alabama this year, and I'm in Seattle, <laughs> you're going to make me buy tickets? No, I don't think so. Not, not happening this year. That's a great point. Okay, so uh, by the time people listen to this, it'll be Christmas Eve. Uh, and Christmas Eve is the Heisman. You got me my Heisman vote. We both have a Heisman vote. 
nobody in the Pac-12 is in it, but I, I think it's good for context in this unique year. Like, what, what did you evaluate regarding the Heisman for this year? And then the back half of that question, Ted, is how do you think the Pac-12 is positioned to head into next year? Because we're in next year before you know it, and it's preseason picks and narratives. Well, uh, boy, Yogi, I mean, we are the the voters from uh, Pac-12 on uh, network on this thing. So I, 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 I just had a hard time. I don't know how else to say it. I had a really hard time. How do you evaluate when one, one team's played four games, one team's played six, the SECs and the ACC have played full seasons. I mean, they've all played 10, 11 games. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Trevor Lawrence. Um, I looked and we were not allowed to say who we voted for. So I'm not saying anything about where my ballot ended up, but I mean, players that I looked at, I even looked, I looked at Ian book. He was the starting quarterback for the number two team in the country. Now they didn't have a very good day on championship day last Saturday. Um, but you're trying to evaluate and I'm trying to evaluate them against uh, or a Zach Wilson who had this terrific year at BYU, right? Zach Wilson is a really good football player. So you're trying to evaluate that level of competition against a, you know, obviously the guys who played in the sec or a Justin Fields that played what four games or five games. Uh, as you said, nobody, I, I, you know, as hard as we would try, I don't think anybody from pac 12 really, rose to the level where you would put them in that, in that group. But I, it just, it was incredibly hard. And um, I, I tried, I tr- I just know this. I tried not to hold the number of games played as a determining factor. I think that's a cop. Personally, I just think that would be a cop out to say this player over that player, because this player played 10, that player played five. Yeah. Um, that's nobody's fault. <laughs> So I would, why penalize a player? It's not that player's fault that their school or their conference, you know, that Arizona State can only play four games this year, that Washington only played four games. I mean, that's, that's not the player's faults. So that's how I felt. That's how I felt going at it. How'd you do? Yeah, I did the same thing. I, I, always, I have a 10-point scale that I usually go through this year. I kind of used it. Um, but really, to me, I went to the definition of the award, which is excellence with integrity. Yeah. And I really tried to think back to like, how did these teams lead off the field as well in a year where you needed to, whether that was testing protocols and keeping your teammates in line or whether it was social justice. I went to a lot of that because I think the performance wise, like everybody had probably the same three to five players, right? Mac Jones, Trevor Lawrence, obviously the receiver at Bama, like there's a Justin Fields, like there's a lot of players that have good seasons. You reference Zach uh, Wilson, um, so I went to that, and, and that's what helped me make my decision, to be honest. I was like, who do I want whole 2020 Heisman in 10 years? Like, what kind of representative of the game are they going to be? And I think there's a bunch of candidates for that, but that's, that's, that's how I made my decision ultimately. And I went back and forth. I was talking to Ryan McGrady, our boy, about it. What do you think? I was talking to you about it. You're just trying to, like, think it through and, and talk it out because we haven't had that many opportunities to do that this year. And I, I netted out with that, and I feel really good about it. Good. You know, it's funny because um, I think I, did, I may have had this conversation with you last week. Um, what you just said is exactly what I love about the Campbell Trophy, which was won by a Pac-12 player last year. And Justin Herbert was the quintessential representative of who Bill Campbell, for whom the trophy is named, was a, was a good friend. And that's who Bill wanted to be, a, a contributing player with integrity. Uh, and and leadership, 
and academics, all of it rolled together, but not just, not just, you know, it gets, it, the Campbell trophy gets, sometimes gets, it's a slight, I'm, it's not intentional, but I know it's a lazy way to describe it as the academic Heisman. No, that's a Rhodes scholarship. When you get to go to Oxford as a Rhodes scholar, that's an academic Heisman. Okay. This was in Bill's mind, this was, Hey, you gotta be a player. You're a player. You don't have to be an all American. You don't have to be a first round draft pick, but you have to be a player a contributing player and a leader and an academic standout. It was, it's the combination of all three. And that's why Justin Herbert last year was just to me, the quintessential representative. And he's somebody that 20 years from now, Bill's family will be proud when they see Justin Herbert holding up that trophy. So that's a great way for you to talk about the Heisman because that in the ideal world, that's what the Heisman should be too. Amen. Amen. Um, okay. So uh, let's spin it forward here to, to finish up the last 15 minutes or so. Um, what do you think, uh, I guess we'll start with the immediate Alamo bowl and Fiesta bowl. Uh, what are your thoughts on the matchups and how will they impact pac 12 football moving forward? Wow. Who's Colorado playing? That's my first question. Yeah, tell yeah. You how intense Col- Colorado, Texas, Colorado, Texas. Oh, Colorado, Tom Texas. Herman. Yeah. Yep. And Iowa State, Oregon. Right. So the Colorado, Texas one is interesting only because, you know, you've heard all the, you've heard all the talk, you know, look, Texas still has this expectation. It's a little bit like my alma mater in Northwest Indiana in that, you know, there's a large segment of the alumni base that thinks they should just be undefeated every year and not willing to embrace the fact that there are probably 40 schools now that really play good top tier division one football. Now a couple of elevated themselves in recent time, but um, that Tom Herman got, seemed to get kind of a uh, lukewarm endorsement from his AD. So I don't know if they're going to have something to prove or not. I don't know. Uh, but I think this is great just for Colorado. It's just a reward game. This is, that's what a bowl game in a perfect world like this year, the only reason you should play it is a reward game. And for Colorado, for what those players dealt with, for Sam Neuer to get one more chance to show who knows where he's going to end up, what he's going to end up doing with his life from here on. That's great. Um, and the Oregon-Iowa State game, you know, I, the Oregon game, I, the championship game to me was a little bit of a head shaker because if Oregon had played like that during the regular season, they might be, they might have been knocking on the CFP door. You know, for some reason they didn't yeah. play that. I don't know. Um, and Iowa State's, you know, that coach, I had heard a lot about him. Uh, for, he came out of a D3 school, great NFL receiver, Pierre Garcon was now retired. Pierre Garçon told me about Matt Campbell when Pierre was with the 49ers. He said, this guy was my offensive coordinator at the, what I forget the name of the school. It was a D3 school. Mount Union, I think, or something. Pierre Union, came out. In Ohio, yeah. Right, that's where. And so Matt Campbell gets this job at Iowa State and Pierre's telling me, no, watch this dude, man. He really, really is good. So that's kind of the tip off and you watch and Matt Campbell is good. And Matt Campbell's going to get another job. I don't know when it's going to be, but he's going to get one anyway. Uh, where where does it go? Oregon's a team that I hope, you know, get, has a strong bowl game because they should be a team that and they need to be a team like USC that leads the conversation going into 21. And and to, to wrap up on that question, Yoke, to me is what's spring football? What's the what do you hear? What's the conversation for spring football? It's a good question. I mean, I haven't asked it in a while, but last time I heard, you know, it was going to probably be similar to what camp was right where some some teams went like cal for instance uh legally they can only have 75 guys on the field at a time 
right? So they don't have two practice fields back to back, like say UCLA. So they had two different practices. Uh, will it be like it was when the pandemic just got, just allowed teams to practice and it was small groups. I think the, to me, I think there'll be a ton of individual work. Yeah. I think that's going to be it. Um, but I'm curious to find out. I mean, I don't see it getting canceled by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think it's going to completely shift. Uh, I would hope just it'd based be on later. where we are. I would hope it'd be later. I mean, I'd hope as late as it can be realistically, just because of the vaccines, right? And if, if, if I'm hearing Dr. Fauci, right, and he's saying late March, early April, by then you should have a good percentage of people who want it, can get it. So if we say spring football is going to be April into May, that to me is a lot smarter than trying to rush it. Yeah, if that's the case, dramatically change. Because he, I, I've always enjoyed, like, Herm's first approach. I, know. I, know. I don't that's think we did the game. You were, yeah, you were doing basketball because it was in February. Um, but the reason was, was to give a young team, you know, an extra four, six weeks of off-season training. So I think if, if this is in May, um, which I'm for, whoever is the safest, I think practices will really change regarding gearing up for the season. Like it won't be a ramp up and multiple scrimmages. Like I think it'll be way more skill development, player development, body development, uh, all those things just based on the dates, you know, just, just to make sure that when it ends, you give guys enough time to recover. But they, every coach wants an eight-week ramp up, right? We clearly learned that this year with all the COVID stuff and all the uh, postponements. So I don't know. It'll, it'll be a wild ride. Uh, but regardless, I was thinking about you last night. And, you know, kind of heard what was uh, – and I was like, I can't wait. I mean, sc- spring ball will be great, but I can't wait for next August. You and me to just go on a road trip. I can't wait for tw- like I a 12-team tour. I, I hope so too. I, I, I really do. I mean, it's – and that's where I'm going. Is that I just think and we're watching what's happening now um, with the ramp up of the virus – everywhere in our lives and what's happening in basketball now. And today, as we're speaking, we lost a basketball game today because the officials wow. tested a UCLA Oregon game. And that's reality. And I've, I've done seven or eight basketball games already. And I tell the people I watch when I get to the arena, I need to see two teams and at least two officials. Three is the preferred, but at least two, you can play the game. And without that, it's, it's senseless. So that's what happened today. Anyway, my point is to say that is, to try to go through spring football and have to go through what these many of these schools just endured where I get a player test in February and I've got contact tracing and now suddenly my whole defensive line room is shut down. Why am I even going through spring football? The longer you can put it off sensibly safely to hopefully where vaccines are readily available. I mean, to me, that's just that, that has to, I think that has to be emphasis one. If we, I know Herm likes it in February that this year, sorry. Yeah. Not, not smart. Yeah. And I don't think he would want it that early. Yeah, I don't saying, think anybody right. would. It's just been, yeah. Okay. So my take on the bowl games, I think for Oregon, it's really exciting because they're so young. I think, I mean, statistically, I think they're the youngest team in the country in power five football, definitely the youngest offensive line. So I'm really excited for them. And I know they're amped up to go play in this one versus, uh, you know, other teams, even if they get a big bowl game, we've seen players opt out of big bowl games, right? No, nobody's opting out. Anybody that wasn't opt out had already opted out for the season for them. Like they, they look at this to me, at least as of today, the 23rd of really cool opportunity. So I hope they get it. I hope both teams can play. <clears throat> I think for Colorado, 
you know, remember Utah last year, they lost to Texas and they lost bad in their bowl game. I think it was the same bowl, the Alamo Bowl. What, what I'm worried about for, for the Buffs is Nate Lane. Obviously not going to play, right? He didn't kill his injury. I, I'm worried for them because uh, they had such a marvelous season. So I don't want that to get lost pending how it finishes. Uh, and, and I'm excited to watch Sam Ellinger. I've known Sam since he was 16, quarterback at Texas. Yeah. He's going to want to finish yep. it in his state uh, as well as he can. And, and to your point, that team make a statement. But, but two cool data points. I like that there's only two games for the conference. Um, and I think he's heading into next year. And I said that this is a playoff committee. I said, the last thing I'd like you to say on our behalf to everyone on the committee is remind them how many players are returning to this conference. Yes. Because there are over a dozen All-American candidates. Like legit dudes, James Daniels, Keaton Slovis. Uh, you can look look up and down the Oregon. I mean, there's a lot of players to me that are really talented coming back. Drake how London. About, might, how about the freshman of the year? What a yeah, Ty Jordan. Ty Jordan to give Utah that the running back that when we started the first of November they didn't have that running back. Now they do. Exactly. Yeah. The other two is hit, the guys that were ahead of them. They're both in the portal. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, so yeah, I I just think that this conference is in a really good position. Every quarterback will return. And by that, I, I mean Cam Rising, because I believe Jake Bentley has also entered the portal, uh, according to somebody who told me that last night. Um, so that's exciting. When you got every signal caller, Greg and L, of course, we'll see what happens with that. But fundamentally, had the opportunity to come back. I think it's just going to be good. I think the narrative for the pack is going to be really good. I think the cyclical nature of college football will make a turn. Uh, and, I, and I look forward to a full season, man. I, I think the conference, while this year was challenging, on a bunch of levels, a full season will be the, will, will be something that I think fan bases and the programs will be happy about. And for the fan bases that are frustrated, l- let to me, social media to a certain degree, feel you, right? Like let I, we've always said it. Pac-12 fans have just as much passion as they do in Tuscaloosa. They just got more things to do in LA. They want to go surfing and not necessarily be there three hours before the game. You remember your story in the Auburn game a couple years ago, you were there three hours before the game that you couldn't move. Well, at Stanford, it's a different deal. You're building an app three hours before the game. doesn't mean the fans don't love football. So uh, to our fans, uh, be excited about your programs next year, even though they're not in the playoff. No, that's right. And, and uh, another, another moment happened that just, to me, so clarifies the difference in how football is approached. Yeah. In the SEC, where Auburn fired their head coach, owing him $21 million in a COVID year. And it's just stunning. It's absolutely stunning that that happened. And nobody down there is stunned. And I have my wires there that I know. Nobody there is stunned. Um, It just happens. Hey, let me ask you, Stanford, the way they finished. You've been on Davis Mills' train in the beginning of the year. He finishes beautifully. Semi Fajoko, wow, his last game. Are they both coming back? God, I hope so. When we saw Colby obviously leave last yeah. year, um, everything I'm told, I think I would anticipate Davis Mills returning. Uh, I hope Simi is as well. Yeah. Because, man, what, what a duo. You'll be hard-pressed. You know, obviously Drake London and Keaton Slovis are one in the South. Yeah. But, uh, and, and I talked to – it was uh, somebody on Stanford staff early in the season. They're like, we think we got the best receiving core in the conference. And I was like, huh? And then you'd look at it, and you're like, oh, Yeah. Connor Weddington, Michael Wilson, see me. Connor Weddington, Michael Wilson, Osiris St. Brown didn't play the last couple games. Right, right. And see me was kind of the version of Kayvon Thibodeau. You knew he was getting the rock. The Bruins knew he was getting the ball. 
And the dude just kept making play after play after play. So I hope they do. I think Stanford, to me, they look the best. At the end of the year, if you said power rankings in the Pac-12, that, if I said I got to take one team, I'd probably take them. Absolutely the team right. I can trust the most. Absolutely right. I mean, if you – well, we won't get into it. But, that, yes, I would agree with you. The other team – to wrap up the final weekend, watching them play again, that's just so fascinating to me is Oregon State. And it's, it's, it's the thing you talked about last week with Arizona. They had lost hope. Oregon State, to me, still has hope. And I'm watching them play the other night, and I'm thinking, Jonathan Smith knows offense, man. He knows offense. They score points no matter who's on the field. How many quarterbacks are down, how many running backs are down, how many receivers are down, they score points. If he can get Obviously, losing Rashad to the um, draft is not going to help to get a couple of defensive players in there. But I'm curious about two things for Oregon State. One is, does he have a quarterback now, or is he going to go get someone? And two, does Jamar Jefferson come back? Because that would be huge. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely a loss. Hammock and Rashid Jr., what yeah. a talent. Uh, they, Avery Roberts got hurt. I think he led the Pac-12 in tackles. So they're going to have some players. I to me I can't see Jefferson returning. That's just my gut. That's not based on anything. Uh, just based on the running backs, the year that he had. I mean, you look at his numbers. What he did against UW, what he did against Oregon, right? What he did against real teams. The only time he didn't go over 100, he left in the, in the third or fourth quarter of a blanking on whatever game it was. Um, it was a one time he didn't. He only had 80 yeah. yards. Uh, just impressive on every front. And then quarterback. I think Chance Nolan's got a chance to be the dude. I, he I, can, I, he I can deal. That. Yeah. yeah, he's really impressive. And they signed somebody really talented coming out of high school. So I like this program moving forward. And we got to love up Brian Lindgren, too. I mean, even when we were calling bad Colorado games, yep. he's the guy calling the offense. He led him to the Pac-12 title, right, with Steve, with uh, Sefo Lufau. He's, there's a reason people go after him every year. Yeah, right? ASU reportedly went after him last year. He's really a talented coordinator. And, and that duo, you're right. I mean, what an incredible staff. And – so all the coaches out there, staff continuity. Jonathan's lost one coach. One coach, and it was Greg Burns, who I've known forever. You spent time with him, too. He was at uh, he went to USC, and then he was at U of A, and now obviously he's looking for uh, you know, to, to land somewhere, and, and I hope he does because he's a really talented coach. But I think coaches are saying, like, yeah, that consistent thought around Jonathan Smith, let me stick around versus go to proverbial greener pastures. And the reason I asked you about Davis Mills – Interestingly enough, so this this year, which obviously has been a terrible year in a lot of ways, but this was the year where in the North, we didn't know who was going to be the quarterback, except it basically Cal, where we knew Chase Garbers was a known quantity. Next year, if Davis Mills comes back, every team in the North has their quarterback back. Yeah, I was talking to a coach in this league, and they said every team in the North could have won the league. Yeah. And you can kind of make an argument there. Like, if you watch the first game of Wazoo against Oregon State – at least the first half of Utah, you could say, wow, like everybody kind of had a chance. And even mathematically heading into the last two weeks um, in a normal world, you, you, I think mathematically Cal was always out, but I think you could have said, yeah, I could see any of these teams representing this division in the title game. So it'll be competitive and, you know, we don't want to see each team cannibalize each other, but the reality is they're all really competitive programs. Yeah. And then the last one I was going to say, it was, it was just, even though they lost, a game Saturday they shouldn't have the way UCLA finished the year. Yeah. The first positive thing they've had to feel about in football for a while. Yeah. When I saw that football scoop report and I was like, what, 
what? They reported that Chip Kelly might have been on his way out, and I love what Martin Jarvan did, their AD. He quote tweeted it and said, not true. Next time, call me. Yeah. And it was awesome because he's right. This program, it was a complete rebuild. And I know Chip, it's a lot of heat. There was a piece in the LA Times that just ripped him yesterday. Um, and I get it. Your record is what it is. But we've been around that program more than anybody in the country. He said at day one, I want to be the number one character building program in the country. And I, I don't know if he's number one, but he's done a great job. If you look at the players and how they're going to school at a place like UCLA. And then this year, you finally watched him perform. And COVID hurt the team with DTR. They might have beat Oregon if he's playing. I think it's a fair assessment. At least it's a fair discussion. And you look at Felton didn't basically play in the last two games, right, for the most part. He got a couple carries late in their second to last game when they needed him to win the game. So I, I just think that Chip is finally really recruiting well. Their class was impressive. They flipped two guys from, from Michigan late. Did a really nice job. So I, to me, UCLA fans, I feel you. I know what you want, but – I, don't, I think it's premature when you look at it with context of the dramatic rebuild that he's had. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, I love you, man. It's Christmas. Back Christmas at you. By the time this comes out. Thanks, man. <laughs> first, how was your first Hanukkah with Makai? It was awesome. It was awesome. And I can't wait to do Christmas. We're all set. Um, it's going to be fun. I can't wait to unplug. This is the last thing I'm doing. So I, uh, <laughs> I've always enjoyed that. And, and I, you know this, but I'm going to say it again. You've impacted me. As a dad, as a husband, clearly as an analyst, and many other fronts, man. So I appreciate you. Oh, Yogi, it's the best. I just pray that uh, we we had one game in a studio this year. I hope that's not the norm. And I just, I, you know, nothing would be better. The spring is, I think, too much to ask for. But next August, I hope we're back to normal. Me too. Let's go on a road trip. <laughs> All right. Lots of love, man. Happy holidays. I got you, Yogi. Same thing. See you, brother. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.